I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. My guest today is Sandra Redding, president of the Exarban Foundation. A conversation today is being recorded by Zoom. Sandra Redding joined the Exarban Foundation as president in 2017, where she oversees and implements its strategic direction. For over 100 years, the Exarban Foundation has been focused on giving time, energy, and resources to create a better heartland for everyone. Sandra is well established in philanthropic endeavors. Her past positions, including executive director of Children's Scholarship Fund of Omaha, president of the Joslin Art Museum Foundation, Director of Development for Lawrence and Gardens, and Vice President for Institutional Advancement at College of St. Mary. Sandra is passionate about expanding education opportunities for all youth, nurturing the leaders of tomorrow, and strengthening the Nebraska workforce. She and her husband, Jim, currently reside in Omaha, Nebraska, and have two children here. Sandra, welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me. We were just chatting off air about the long legacy, the long history of the foundation. It's been active for more than 100 years. So would you mind just sharing a little bit about its origins and and maybe a little of its history? Sure. So Exarban is an organization that's uh, been serving the state of Nebraska and Western Iowa for 126 years. And uh, years and years and years ago, it started in response to crises facing the state of Nebraska. So for those 126 years, that's what the foundation is focused on, is really making life better for it for the state and Western Iowa. Of course, most people remember Exarban for the Exarban racetrack, the horse racing, which many, many decades. And the proceeds of of the racetrack really allowed the foundation to do some incredible things across the region, um, funding significant projects, the the, uh, Memorial uh, Park, you know, um, saving the Orpheum Theater, projects all over the state, you know, building firehouses, buying fire trucks, just small projects and large projects across the state. And then, of course, scholarships. Since the 1950s, Exarban has been awarding scholarships for students to attend, at that time, four-year colleges. Um, and since then, we continue those programs. But when the racetrack closed, um, you know, 20 or so years ago, the foundation never really recalibrated itself. And so, um, you know, in that time, we've been really trying to focus on who we are, where we go, what we do. And of, of course, it's still this basis of leadership across the state. And so we, today, we continue our legacy programs of awarding scholarships to students to attend four-year and two-year colleges. In fact, we award a million dollars a year in those scholarships to students. And we restrict those scholarships to students uh, attending colleges and universities in Nebraska. One of the things that we're really focused on is retaining our talent in the state. We continue our legacy of honoring farm families who have owned their family farm for 100 and 125 years. So these are the pioneers of the state of Nebraska. 
that we continue to honor. And each year we have, you know, well over a hundred families who we honor. That's really at the heart um, of our ag initiative. Of course, we still support the Exarban Stock Show that's 90 plus years um, in the making. We relocated that stock show to Grand Island uh, three years ago. They have the best facility in the region to hold the stock show. And it's really enabled the stock show to expand and grow. Now students, 4-H students from over 14 states are competing. So these are the future ag leaders, you know, of, of our region, of our country. And then we still award community scholarships. So it's much, much smaller now that we no longer have the, the racetrack funding those. But uh, we still award scholarships that are helping, you know, with community centers, maybe with um, early childhood centers, just projects that, you know, that small grift is not going to make or break the project, but oftentimes it's that top or that final gift that's needed. Those are our legacy programs that have been going on for a hundred plus years. Uh, you mentioned the formation of the foundation, you know, over a century ago, driven out of crises. What were those crises at that time that were the, you know, the catalyst? Sure. So at the time, uh, a group of 12 business leaders came together. And of course, it was during um, a time of depression. You know, the, the economy was um, in dire straits. And at, frankly, it started with trying to retain the state fair. Um, we were going to lose the state fair. And that was something that, especially during that time in our history, people needed uh, a respite or, you know, something to kind of raise people's spirits. And so at the time, that was quite a crisis. And so those business leaders came together and said, we need to save this. We need to make sure that we can maintain the celebration. Um, and then, of course, the Exarban Ball has been, gosh, honoring leaders and philanthropists since day one. And then, of course, over the years, it's responded to various you know, situations and crises. But it's really a, a leadership group. It suggests to me that maybe the genesis was in response to uh, crises. My sense from what you're describing, though, is that some of those activities that, that have a, now, looking back, have a certain legacy to them, but where we are maybe in the last two decades has transformed a little bit. And, and now um, some of the focus is a, a little more proactive, shall I say, instead of responding to crises, yeah. it's, it's more proactive. Um, so how has the foundation perhaps reoriented its response to the needs of the community? That's a good way to put it, actually, Stuart. And so it, it in a way, um, it does continue to be responsive, in, in, but we're trying to work proactively, if that, if that makes sense. So we're responding to really one of the biggest crises facing our state in decades, and quite frankly, it's a crisis that's facing the entire country. And that's a talent shortage. That's a workforce shortage. It's, um, you know, it's um, human capital, if you will. And so we're responding to that crisis in the state of Nebraska, but we're trying to be proactive and coming up with um, initiatives that will help address that. And when I say uh, the crisis today, Basically, if you ask any business owner throughout the state, whether it's in the greater metropolitan area or in greater Nebraska, western Iowa, 
Um, at any given point, we have 50,000 plus jobs open every single day that those jobs go unfilled. And, um, you know, our low unemployment rate in Nebraska, anybody that can work and wants to work is working. And so, you know, how are we going to maintain in our businesses? How is our economy? How is our state going to continue to thrive if we have that kind of a shortage? And frankly, we're going to be losing businesses if we don't address that. So I guess that's the, the crisis that faces us today. And so we've really pivoted um, over the last four years to focus on workforce development and addressing our talent shortage. I want to dive a little bit more into that challenge. Before we get there, I'm curious how some of the decisions are made by the foundation in terms of this transformation over, you know, over a century in what are the crises or the opportunities that the foundation wants to choose to tackle. And in this case, we'll, we'll talk in a minute about workforce development, but I'm just wondering how, how you choose that when there are so many, you know, community needs to pick from. I think, you know, the choice is, is, I guess, comes relatively naturally because the foundation itself, the criteria to be on our board is that you must be a, a business leader. You know, you must be a CEO or in a decision-making uh, role in your organization, uh, their business. And so it, I think it's a natural to, to look towards business. And, you know, we have so many wonderful organizations that are dealing with you know, feeding, clothing, sheltering, you know, helped, helping to educate, you know, all across our state. But the one thing that business can do is get involved in, you know, impacting the future of the state and their daily concern is employment. It's been four weeks since you called and I've been waiting here for you all along. I've been waiting here for you all along Where you been? Where did you go? I wonder if you found what you're looking for Wonder if you found what you're looking for I hope it's not too late I want you back here with me Never should have said it's better this way I'd rather be with you than someone I don't know Now it's like we're living in two separate worlds Come on back to me, say that you won't go I can't cope without you and I wanna hold you close Say that you won't go So that leads you then to identify workforce development as an area that the foundation really needs to be focused on. And you said that that's mainly been in the last sort of four or five years that you've really picked up that mantle. Let me put the question bluntly. What's the problem? Describe the problem. The problem is, quite frankly, we're hemorrhaging talent. We are losing 19 to 34-year-olds. And they are leaving the state in record numbers. Problem number one. Problem number two is that we are losing people once they've once they've worked and have maybe six years of experience. Maybe they've gone to school here, educated here, have gotten their early experience here. 
during that critical point where they're looking at their next step in their career, we're losing folks at that stage. We're educating the workforce for the country and we're not retaining them here. And the other issue is, and I think um, one that's, you know, magnified and just continues year over year is we're graduating 25,000 high school students every year on average. Every year, 9,700 of those students do not go on to any form of post-secondary education. And by that, I mean, they're not going to community college. They're not going to a four-year college. They're not going into uh, maybe apprenticeship programs or certification programs. We're just losing those students. And so what that means is, you know, you look at the trajectory of their life and how limited they are just income-wise. That is not setting them up for success. So the 9,700, and then you go spring forward, students from freshman year to sophomore year in college, that number goes from 9,700 to 13,000 because we're losing students. They're dropping out of school for whatever reason. And they may be dropping out of school with debt. So they've incurred debt just that one year. So now they've graduated and they have debt and they have no, you know, their prospects for a good paying job are very limited. And so we lead the country in uh, multiple W-2s per person. You know, we talk about the Nebraska work ethic, which of course is so strong in the Midwest. And that's certainly a part of it. But part of it is that people oftentimes need to have more than one full-time job just to make ends meet. So, you know, you kind of roll all those together and you can see why a state with a small population to begin with, low unemployment, you can see where um, it's kind of a perfect storm. What are some of these drivers at that end of things, of people, as it were, sort of dropping out of this workforce development need that we, that mm-hmm. we have? Well, likely those students probably are going on to employment. They might be, but they're employment in low-wage, um, low-skill jobs. And uh, it's not as though they're not joining the workforce because when you see our unemployment rate, you know that anybody that can work for the most part is working, but they're working in low skill, low paying or low wage jobs and their lifetime earnings, you know, over a lifetime, you know, well over a million dollar difference between those with an education and those without. Looking at the other end then with people leaving the state, what are the drivers of that? Is it money? Is it opportunity? Is it um, the type of jobs or is it is it not business related? Is it socially and culturally related? I think you kind of put it all in a basket. (laughs) Frankly, it's all of the above. And, you know, we can talk to every single person and we'll probably get different answers. Some of it is just opportunity for advancement into that next level of job. Some of it is um, because Nebraska's wages are 20% below that of our neighboring states. So wage-wise, we're not competing. Now, young people may not look at things like um, insurance or cost of living. And, and it used to be our cost of living was so much lower that that kind of um, made up for the lower wage. But wages are certainly an issue. But I think lifestyle, I think it's around diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, young people are looking for, um, they, they, they value diversity. 
they value um, equity and inclusion. And, you know, we're, um, we're working on it. We're trying, but that's, those are the things that young people are looking for. It sounds as if it's more than just getting people into um, not only a good education, but education in fields that, that will meet the opportunities in the economy. So that's one part of it, it sounds like. But it also sounds as if there are other issues that are perhaps um, socially systemic. And I don't know what it is the foundation feels it can do or is trying to do in that regard to tackle that side of things as well. What are some of the sort of initiatives or the pathways that the foundation sees it can play a role in? One of the first initiatives, and and quite frankly, it's business recognition that this is important. Any business leader that you talk to is talking about their goals for diversity, you know, in their companies. And so, um, you know, we are the business environment. So I think, you know, just the fact that businesses are recognizing, um, but it's equitable inclusion, you know, it's and it's diversity and it's equity and it's being inclusive. Um, it's things like, you know, policies at work. It's things like um, hairstyles, but it's also community related things. You know, um, can I find a place, you know, to worship if I, you know, my faith is important to me. So I think it's just recognition and businesses recognizing that, hey, this matters. This is important. This is, this is how we will retain um, and attract talent. But I think the other piece is, you know, looking at the 9,700 that are not going on to school, we need to really look at, so our fastest growing population in the state of Nebraska is our Latino population, but that's where we have the biggest education gap. As a matter of fact, we rank fifth in the country for having the biggest education gap between Caucasian, white, and non-white. That's a huge issue when you're looking at diversity, equity, and inclusion, and you know, everyone having the same opportunities. You know, that's where we start in our K-12. No questions asked, I'm just hanging around. I sit right here, I'm just spending my time. In Nebraska, there is very much, um, you know, two extremely large, comparatively urban cores in Omaha, Lincoln, mm -hmm. and then most of the mass of the state is, uh, you know, rural. 
I just want to bring that into the mix of our conversation too. What, what's happening in terms of um, the challenge that the state is facing from your perspective as regards rural and urban issues? Well, you know, there's no scenario where one thrives and the other doesn't. The entire state needs to thrive. So if greater Nebraska is not doing well, you know, the metropolitan area is not doing well and vice versa. So the idea of the rural urban divide um, is it, it, it may exist. I think it's diminishing, but um, it's false to think that one can thrive and the other will not. So first of all, and I think, you know, second of all, I think that's why Exarban, you know, we, we focus on the entire state. We're not, we're not focused on Omaha and Lincoln alone. And the greater Nebraska is, is probably as diverse and is growing in diversity um, faster, you know, than in areas um, like Scotts Bluff or have, have had a far more diverse population for a long time. Um, so that urban rural, I think Exarban has that unique position to reach out because we've been helping communities for 126 years. It's not just Omaha. It's a little bit too binary to talk about rural-urban. I mean, they have different needs, different pressures, of course. But in a state like Nebraska, they, they both have to thrive. So I appreciate you pointing that out. I'm also aware that just generally across the country, and Nebraska is no different, that if we're talking about sort of the, the loss of talent or a failure to lift up the potential of talent, there is a distinction between urban and rural as more people uh, leave rural settings, they're often going to larger urban settings. So, you know, Omaha might be attracting people right. from rural Nebraska, but also losing people Very from Omaha true. to other places. Right. And that, you know, when you look at the growth of Omaha and Lincoln, it's coming from greater Nebraska. Now, the pandemic may change things and, has, of course, obviously has changed things where now um, people, I think, are recognizing the, the quality of life that can be had in smaller communities, and you can work anywhere. Um, but the growth from to Omaha and Lincoln, you know, the majority comes from greater Nebraska. It's not from Chicago or Denver, you know, um, it's from greater Nebraska. So let me invite you to talk about any specific illustrations that you can offer that would throw some light on what the foundation is attempting to do to remedy issues in these specific areas that you've talked about, some of, some of these drivers. The, the one thing that I want to um, really emphasize is through all of this, business is recognizing that it really needs to take their seat at the table when it comes to K-12 education. And I think for so long, um, K-12 has been um, indicted and, you know, so much has been put upon them. And quite frankly, business hasn't been there. Business needs to be there. Business needs to take their seat at the table and help, help K, you know, with K-12 education. We're all in this together. Um, and then K-16, quite frankly. And so one of those things um, that Exarban is doing is, looking at how can business interact and um, support, you know, K-16 education. And one of those ways is through internship programs. And let me start by saying Exarban is looking at workforce initiatives that are regional-based or industry-based. And, you know, the criteria, if you will, for those initiatives is, number one, 
um, any initiative must be led by an Exarban board member. So an Exarban board member steps up and takes responsibility for leading an initiative. And that includes, you know, raising the funds for that initiative. Um, number two is it's focused on a specific problem. It's not a pet project, but it's a real issue that's facing the state, the region, the industry, whatever. The other piece is we want to look at initiatives that are scalable, replicable, and sustainable. And they focus on the entire state. So things that can, uh, maybe a concept that works in Northeast Nebraska that could be replicated in some way, shape, or form in other regions. That's kind of the criterion for Exarban's initiatives. give you an idea of some of the things that we're doing, um, one of our first initiatives is called Growing Together in Northeast Nebraska that is based out of Norfolk, and that's led by an Exarban board member and, of course, um, now a member of the legislature, Mike Flood, who, uh, gosh, we've been working on this initiative for maybe two and a half years. But what Mike did is brought together an incredibly diverse group of people. And it's not necessarily the usual suspects, you know, that you might find all the chamber members in, in Norfolk, but brought together this unique group of people and really spent time looking at um, the data, learning that, you know, wages in that part of the state are 20% below other areas of the state. Uh, looking at the fact that the top five industries in that part of the state are going to be disrupted um, as a result of technology, um, looking at the fact that that area has one of the lowest um, number of graduate degrees or bachelor's degrees. So that's where we started. Also looking at kind of the trajectory of Norfolk, which is really the economic hub of that region. Norfolk has done well, you know, kind of holding steady on population and population growth. But in, in the upcoming years, it's going to start to decline. But the other thing that we knew, we noticed is that we are hemorrhaging young people at a much greater rate than other parts of the state. So that's where we started. Um, and so we brought together researchers from the University of Nebraska, made sure that we had good data and then began looking at what are the things that can turn that around. Number one is connecting young people with businesses. We know that if students are, whether it be high school students, college students, when they're connected with a business through an internship, they're much more likely to remain and stay working in that company, provided it's a good experience. So we began a co-op scholarship program with Wayne State College Exarban funded the first cohort of 45 students. And it's a unique program. I'm not aware of any other program like it in the country, but Wayne State actually freed up 18 hours in their curriculum um, to enable 
students to work full-time in their senior year in college. So we recruited students as freshmen into specific industries, technology being one of the leading industries, with the intention knowing that the first three years in school, they're going to have their academic work, but they're going to be interacting with business that whole time. Now, business is also going to be learning about, okay, what do, what do employees want? What are young people, what are they looking for? So it's training for businesses as well. And then in that fourth year, they will go live in downtown Norfolk and work in a business in downtown Norfolk. And the idea is that they'll stick, that the businesses are providing good wages, which is another part of another criteria. It's like, you're not going to get a bargain. This is not about getting a bargain for an employee. Um, so that's kind of the first concept. And then we want to create some density in the downtown. What are young people looking for? Well, living, working, recreation, you know, they want to see people that look like them, that are their age. And so we're working on um, really revitalizing the downtown area and, you know, creating places for young people to live. So there's a housing component. There's also an entrepreneur or a tech component where we're looking to attract tech founders, working with Invest Nebraska to really become a hub for technology and tech founders. And so it's, it's really um, kind of a purpose-built community, which is consistent, frankly, with Blueprint Nebraska, if you're familiar at all with Blueprint Nebraska and the goals on placemaking. And so it's kind of a little microcosm of what young or what communities can be. By the way, it also features early childhood education and focusing on the importance of early childhood education and its role in workforce development. So that's one of our initiatives. But I think, you know, the other, the other piece that I um, can't emphasize enough is we're, we're, not, we're not the only organization um, looking at this, doing this work. Um, you know, there are hundreds, if not thousands um, of organizations. And I, you know, and I applaud our school systems in our K-12, our higher ed, um, and lots and lots of great organizations out there all doing the same work. We're all trying to figure this out. And it's, it's late in coming. It's, it's you know, um, it's long, long overdue but we're recognizing it. And I guess the, the, the piece that Rep, Exarbon represents and probably best represents is the business side of it, is um, business. So Exarbon is here to support and help lift up, you know, good work that's being done, great work that's being done, um, but it's also here to maybe lead in areas like another initiative, the Nebraska Tech Collaborative, which is another, I think, extremely important statewide initiative focused on technology and technology workers. So um, I, I hate to be too, you know, focused on Exarvin because we, we support as well as lead. And um, I'd be remiss to, to not mention the great work that's being done by so many others. Keep the human
used the phrase about young people appreciating Norfolk because they could see people you know, like them. When I think about Axe Arben, um, and I think about Axe Arben Ball, for example, I, I don't know how many people in the state would necessarily see themselves in that. I have to ask, you know, as, is the foundation aware that, you know, maybe the, the image that it has while it's trying to do the work you're talking about, which is lifting whole communities up, it may not seem to be necessarily representative of community. Exactly. You're right. And of course, that's not lost on anyone um, at Exarban or anyone around the state. One of the things that we did, one of the changes that we made is really to um, modernize or recalibrate the Exarban ball, for instance. We knew that the optics of the king and the queen you know, really were no longer um, appropriate um, for today's day and age. And so that was one of the big changes we made. And frankly, that pivot allowed us to get into this area of, you know, the, the organization was getting lost in, in the Exarban Ball. You know, it, we were leading with the Exarban Ball and, and the meaning, I think, behind the Exarban Ball, which the intention has always been to honor um, leadership, philanthropy, volunteerism, people that are making, you know, the state a better place. So that's number one. That was the first thing that we needed to do. And um, that has opened the door. Um, you know, we have much more diversity, for instance, in our the Women's Ball Committee, which is a group of women um, professionals and women that work from home on that committee. We are looking to have greater diversity and participation in the ball, which means that we need to be proactive, talking, talking about um, inclusiveness. You know, it's one thing to, to talk about it, but when it's uh, a group of white <laughs> uh, businessmen primarily, right? Um, so we recognize that. We're, the floor committee is another area that we're really seeking. That was formerly a group of men in their, you know, mid-career and, um, that we're supporting Exarban, and we are going to great lengths to diversify and, and uh, welcome women and people of color onto that the committee. So it, even on my staff, for instance, 30% uh, of my staff, which is a small staff, albeit, um, are people of color. We have a long, long way to go. And, um, and, and one of our initiatives, um, will be headed headed by a Latina board member, but our Latino initiative. So um, you're right, it's not lost on us, but um, like businesses, like um, education, you know, it's one of our one of our primary goals. You and I are having this conversation the same week that is the anniversary of George Floyd's murder. This is a context that's really shone a much brighter light on some of the issues of inequity that, that you've touched on. I'm wondering how hard it is for you as the leader of an organization that you know needs to, um, to shift and grow and, and turn towards harder issues, how hard that is for you to turn an organization that has been operating for more than 100 years um, to focus on new challenges. Uh, you've mentioned workforce development as one that's a recent pivot, but I, I can't imagine how hard it is to be turning an organization um, to, you know, courageously confront these issues. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I'm just wondering what it's like for you 
being president of the organization? First of all, I'm uh, a female leading the organization, which I think speaks volumes um, for the organization and where we're going. You know, I joke sometimes that we're a 126-year-old startup organization. I say that, um, you know, with great respect and, and deference and pride in, you know, what the organization has done, you know, over those 126 years. But I think like, like all businesses, um, you know, being confronted with, you know, really looking at ourselves and saying, are we inclusive? Are we um, offering opportunities and doing what we need to do to, you know, as far as equitable opportunities? You know, so I, I think as a leader of the organization, you know, I, I'm going to, one, give credit to my board where credit is due, because those are the brave um, souls that really recognize that we need to make a change. And so I credit my board or I wouldn't be here. You know, they made a conscious decision to hire a, a woman and to make these changes four years ago. And granted, they were not easy changes. For instance, uh, letting go of the rodeo, which is was a beloved tradition, but the board recognized, you know, we're losing money. We're no longer funded by um, horse racing. So letting go of that and, um, you know, frankly, moving the stock show to Grand Island, um, 90 plus years in Omaha, another tradition that people in Omaha loved. And then the Exarvin Ball, that was probably the hardest and biggest pivot of all. And it, not that people were against the change, but, you know, changing that tradition while still honoring and respecting and being proud of, of the past. You know, those were all really, really difficult things. But, um, you know, in 126, the organizations come through a lot, a lot of difficult times, certainly. And if ever there was a time that an organization like Exarbon is needed, it's, it's now. And I, I'd say it, it was a difficult time. It would have been a difficult time for anyone, um, you know, making these changes. But it's something, the organization and what we're doing is something that I'm so very proud of. You know, it's been worth kind of the pain points. Um, and I think the potential and the importance of what it is we need to do. And, and again, a board that's um, having my back <laughs> makes it worthwhile. This is a good day as any To start the rebuilding of life The roads that lay open are many When the old one's gone under the knife And I can feel the sun on my Let's talk about you a little bit. What was your childhood like? 
it's funny talking about your, yourself. It's so much easier to talk about the work that you do and, and what you're proud of and what you do on a day-to-day basis. But, um, you know, I, I don't know how you, unique my story is, but I grew up in a small town of 200 people in Northwest Iowa. And um, I don't think most people can really appreciate what a small town of 200 is, meaning we had no stoplights. Um, we had a church, a gas station, um, post office, and a bank. When people talk about it, it takes a village, you know, to raise to raise kids. It, it truly did. Um, the the town, for instance, I, I remember I, I was raised Catholic, and uh, it was a big deal to be able to go to church, you know, with your friends on Saturday night because as Catholics we have Saturday night mass, and it was a big deal to be able to go to church with your friends. And uh, just to give you an example of how small the town is, we thought we were so cool. So we skipped out of church after communion. Well, of course, by the time I got home, my parents already knew what had happened. So, you know, talk about a small town. I I grew up in this little town. Um, I'm first generation college student. Um, My graduating high school class was 65 students, most of whom did not go on to college. My parents, of course, I'm first-gen college students, so they didn't go to college, but they recognized the importance of it. So it was never, would I go to college? It was, where would I go to college? Um, and I was an athlete, so you know, I had the chance to, to you know, play collegiate athletics on a small scale. You know, education was always a value, a value to me. And that small town. So I think as I travel the state of Nebraska and, and visit small towns and the best part of my job is when I'm in my car out meeting people, I can really relate to what is happening in small towns and the value um, of small towns. You know, Mike Flood talks about greater Nebraska and Nebraska, we're raising the gold. Um, and I, I really do believe that. What was it that drew you through college and then into a career that is focused in the philanthropic field? What I mean, I don't know if that was your field of study or if there was something that called you into that career or if maybe it was accidental. When I was in college, um, I frankly, I was interested in working in higher education. I had an internship or one of my jobs was in the college admissions office. And I loved that work. I loved working with parents and, and kids and um, you know, was really proud of my my college, and so really thought that I wanted to work in um, higher education. For a year, I worked at a social service agency, and um, I laugh. I was the director of personnel. Ha ha! You know, right out of college, what did I know? An English major. Um, but I had a boss that said, you know, you really should think about fundraising, and you really should think about going back to school. And um, you know, you love higher education. So I, I went to Iowa State and got my master's degree in student services. So, um, you know, had assistantships in student services, residence life, my most difficult job ever, um, running a residence hall. And then I did an assistantship in the Iowa State Foundation. And so kind of had an inkling that I was interested in fundraising. I knew I wanted to be in higher ed graduated, worked at a small college um, near Des Moines Simpson College, and worked for a couple of years running as, as a counselor, running the student services, counseling career services. But then shortly was tapped by the VP for advancement at the college and said, you know, come raise money for us. So 
I guess it's kind of a circuitous route into fundraising. I mean, I don't think anyone goes to college or grows up and dreams of being a fundraiser. Um, but I just look at it as the greatest opportunity to do good. You mentioned in my bio, you know, most of my career has been spent in fundraising, including at the Children's Scholarship Fund. But it's been education focused for sure. You've moved through from being this athlete, this English major, to this position where you're at now. So it's a you know a long career where you've 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 moved in different ways and up the leadership ladder, as it were. And I'm curious what leadership lessons you feel like you've benefited from over that time, and perhaps inverting that, what what leadership lessons you feel are important to share with others. You know, I think um, number one, just being an athlete, I'm competitive and I know what it's like to work with a team. And so you're only as good or as successful as a team, you know, that you're leading. And I always, I sincerely believe in um, hiring people who are better than you. So they're better at what they do than what you do. And um, I hope the people I hire aspire to, you know, maybe the position that I'm in as a leader or becoming a leader in another organization or in another way. So I think that's, that's important. I guess one of the biggest lessons, and I, you know, try to practice this and learn this every day is, you know, someone just said to me, you know, God gave you two ears and one mouth and use them accordingly. And so um, I think just with that counseling background, you know, that's kind of served me well. Um, I, I, I am a talker. <laughs> it is difficult for me to probably ask those that I work with, uh, you know, do I, do I practice that? But I aspire to that. I've just been really blessed to, um, you know, I really think so much of it is just being in the right place at the right time. So equity and opportunity, you know, I've had opportunities that not everybody has. And I've been fortunate to have mentors that not everyone has. So, you know, I recognize in this work that we do, some of it is just you have good luck and then you work really hard. And, um, you know, as, as I said, I'm a competitor and I want to win. And um, that comes in handy in a job like this. My guest today has been Sandra Redding, president of the Axarban Foundation. Sandra, thank you so much for joining me and chatting with me today. Oh, thank you. I've enjoyed it. That's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at Lives Radio Show. The music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives Radio Show and Podcast. 
Join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community and more. Thank you.